The 1st of July 1916 was the black day of the British Army when more than 57,000 soldiers became casualties in a single day. We walk the line from Gomacor and Montabar and consider those terrible losses. Today is the 1st of July. On this day in 1916, at 7.30 in the morning, the men who had prepared for the Somme offensive, the Big Push, went over the top. It became known as the blackest day in the history of the British Army. Of the nearly 134,000 men who went into battle that day, 57,000 of them became casualties. There were more men lost on that day than any other day of the Great War from the British and Commonwealth perspective, and it was the worst day in terms of casualties in the entire British Army's history. More men were battle casualties that day than in the entire Boer War, for example. And today, like many of you, I'll be thinking of those vast open fields that form the chalk downland of the Somme, thinking of the veterans that I knew who were there, thinking of the stories of the men who I've researched who took part in that deadly, costly first day of the Somme. And no doubt many of you will be not just thinking of place, but of people as well, of your stories, perhaps your ancestors who took part in the 1st of July 1916 on the Somme. And what we're going to do in this week's podcast is take a little walk along the entire 18-mile front of the Somme, a virtual walk along those 1st of July battlefields, starting at Gomacor in the north and ending at Montabar in the south. Now, we're not going to cover every aspect of every part of the line that day. We've had many individual episodes about particular areas of the Somme connected to the first day of the battle. And you can go back through the podcast catalogue to find those episodes and discover more about a particular area that interests you. But in this, we're going to kind of not have a, an overview of it, but walk, virtually walk, along that old front line of the Somme for the first day of the battle and talk about some of the things that connect me to those places and indeed some of those stories that I've uncovered in all these years of visiting those battlefields. And there'll be a map on the podcast website so you can see how these places are all connected up and some leads to the usual books that will hopefully tell you more about the story of what happened on the first day of the Somme. As historians, as those interested in history, we are perhaps over-fascinated by individual dates. The 1st of July in the Great War, the 6th of June 1944 in the Second World War, along with many others. But they are important landmarks. History is about landmarks, about how there is societal, even world change as a consequence of these dates. And I've mentioned this story before, but the historian A.J.P. Taylor, who was a great influence on me, particularly in the way that he delivered history and the way that he spoke about history and the ideas that he wasn't afraid to have about aspects of our history, not just military history, but political and social history as well. He once stated that for him, the 20th century did not begin on the 1st of January 1900. It began on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And what he meant by that was that 
a new world emerged that day, a new world that the Great War, after two years of conflict nearly, had become a total war, a war fuelled by industry. Men moved across in industrial numbers to take part in great battles, industry producing the weapons and the bullets and the bombs and the bayonets that were required to fight those battles. And when those battles were fought, the casualties that would be suffered would be on an industrial scale, industrial killing, industrial death and destruction, something that would really classify, characterise much of the rest of the 20th century. So for AJP Taylor, the 1st of July was this turning point in our history in which we moved from an older world, and if you look at those early battles of the First World War, very often men were trying to fight a type of warfare that the First World War was not, and we see from the 1st of July onwards a change in the war. For the British and Commonwealth Empire soldiers on the ground, a change in the approach to the war. And by the end of the Battle of the Somme, on the 18th of November 1916, four and a half months later, you could say that the 1st of July looked back to Waterloo, and the 18th of November 1916, the end of the campaign, looked ahead to the battles in Normandy. And again, like AJP Taylor's assertion that the 1st of July was this great societal shift and a shift in world history from one old world to a new world, some might argue that's a simplistic view, but it's an interesting one. I think the idea that the beginning of the Somme looks back to Waterloo and the end of the Somme looks onwards to Normandy is also, on one level, simplistic, but equally a way to understand how warfare had changed. They didn't fight the first day of the Somme every day of the war, and they certainly didn't fight it every day of the 141 days of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. It was a change. So that's its dominance, its casualties, its losses, the type of men that fought there, from territorials to new army, Kitchener's army men, entire communities with the Powell's battalions going into battle. All of this is what makes the 1st of July 1916 so powerful in our consciousness of the First World War. So let's begin our virtual walk along that front from Gomacore to Montauban. And we'll begin in that northern part of the battlefield at Gomacore, walking down a track running parallel to the battlefield, just close the track itself at Gomacore, coming from the wooded area down towards the Gomacore Funcavillier Road, runs roughly in line of where the German front line positions were. Behind us is a wooded area known as the Little Z, and while that wooded area is on private land and must be respected as such, you will find the remains of Great War trenches there, part of the German trench defences of this area around Gomacore village on the northern part of the battlefield and Gomacore Park and Gomacore Wood. All of this encompassed within the German line. In this northern part of the battlefield, not part of the main advance, but a diversionary attack to try and draw away some of the attention from the main area where the battle was to be fought. And two British divisions fought in this northern area, in this ground that we're walking along. To our right is no man's land, 
Beyond that, towards the village of Foncavillier, whose church spire we can see in the distance, was the British front line. The ground's pretty flat here, and occasionally as we walk along this track, moving away from the little Z, we can see some mounds in the fields here where there were German bunkers, perhaps machine gun positions, sighted just behind their front line. And we can see the potential field of fire that they had across this open ground. And here, the northernmost division of the British Army that took part in the Battle of the Somme in this diversionary attack was the 46th North Midland Division. They were a territorial division formed before the war. There were battalions of the Lincolnshire Regiment, the North Staffordshire, the South Staffordshire, the Sherwood Foresters. They had fought at Lewes in 1915 in the attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt, suffered very heavy casualties there, and this was their second major offensive. Many of their battalions had been made up with replacements from the reserve battalions of those territorial units from those different parts of Staffordshire, Nottinghamshire, Lincolnshire, and the other places represented by units within this division in that North Midland area. So although this wasn't a POWs unit, because these units were locally recruited, losses, of course, could then affect those communities in exactly the same way. The attack here was a dreadful failure, and the men were thrown back into their trenches with heavy losses. The area that as we come up to near the roads was where some of the Staffordshire battalions went in, after the battle here, there was a court of inquiry, one of those rare occasions in the war in which there was an inquiry into what had happened. And it's a fascinating document that I hope to return to in the podcast one day because it contains the accounts of many ordinary soldiers, unusually so because the senior officers, even company commanders, let alone battalion commanders, had all been killed or wounded in the battle and only ordinary men were left to give their account of what had unfolded. And you see a lot of ordinary soldiers' language. One of the men in one of the staff's battalions, and I always remember that when I come here, as they were pulling back, having come under absolutely murderous machine gun fire, they could hear the Germans standing on their parapets, calling to them, come back, you bastards, we haven't finished with you yet. And that was the kind of sheer brutality that was taking place here on the 1st of July where the Germans were just mowing these men down in no man's land. Their divisional commander, Stuart Wortley, was sacked as a consequence of this battle, but the corps commander here, who was General Snow, the great-grandfather of Dan Snow, the military historian, and I made a programme here with Dan some years ago about his relative's involvement in this battle, he doesn't come out of it, General Snow, very well. He blamed the men who attacked here for a lack of offensive spirit, but it is one of those occasions in the war when you stand here and look across this battlefield and you realise the brutal reality of it is that dead men can advance no further. And from here, we'll walk down through Gomacor village, a village that British troops did not see unless they were prisoners of war until 1917, when the Germans pulled back from here. It was quite a big village with a chateau. The Germans reinforced it. They had a headquarters in the chateau. They had tunnels linking up a lot of the cellars in the buildings that were here, and a very, very powerful trench system, well-constructed trench system around the village, with Gomacor wood to the north, just behind the main German line, giving good views across that northern part of the battlefield, and then Gomacor Park, part of the Chateau Park, to the west of the village in a kind of nose shape, and 
that gave a good view to the northern and southern area of the battlefield around the village of Gomacor. And what was meant to happen here on the 1st of July is we walked down the road that runs alongside Gomacor Park out towards no man's land, the big valley between Gomacor and the next village of Hebuturn. We look across to our right, there's a little area of clumps of trees there where there's a concrete bunker and we're going to head towards that now. In this area, this was the join between the 46th North Midlands attack and the neighbouring division, the 56th London division, also a territorial division made up of battalions like the Queen Victoria Rifles, the Queen's Westminster Rifles, the London Scottish, there were several Royal Fusilier battalions in the division, and it had been out, broken up initially since 1914, reformed in 1916, and this was its first big battle, commanded by Major General Hull. And when we get up to the bunker, and we've covered this in a previous podcast episode in some depth, I think of two of the veterans in particular that I knew. I interviewed quite a lot of veterans of the London Regiment who fought at Gomacor, but two in particular, one from the London Regiment and one in the artillery supporting their attack. Harry Coates, who was in the London Scottish, he was then part of the brigade staff, and Malcolm Vivian, who was a forward observation officer, a FOO, in 96 Siege Battery. And they were in the original version of this dugout, which was not a concrete structure at that time, this particular bunker that's here, facing towards a section of Gomacor Park that comes out into a promontory where there was a single oak tree known as the Kaiser's Oak. They were in this area on the first day of the Somme. Harry Coates with his brigade major, Philip Neem VC, had got the Victoria Cross at the beginning of the war at Neuve-Chapelle in October 1914, and their brigadier watching the attack go in, and Malcolm was spotting for his 9.2-inch guns, dropping shells onto Gomacor and the ground to the south of it over towards Rossignol Wood, Nightingale Wood, or Cops 125, as the Germans called it. And they witnessed that attack go in for both of them in different ways. It kind of characterised everything that they thought was terrible about the First World War, watching this vast open valley on a perfect sunlit morning and lines and lines of infantry going forward and getting mown down in no man's land. And for Harry Coates, him and his brigade major, Philip Neem, they had to evacuate their brigadier out of the dugouts with shell shock, having watched his brigade get annihilated that day. That was a terrible moment in the war for him. And for Malcolm, all part of his experiences on the Somme, both here at Gomacor on the 1st of July, then at Serre in November 1916, where he was determined thereafter that if he could do anything to help the infantry not get mowed down like this, then he would. And that led to him being awarded a military cross for saving his gun battery site near Lens in 1917, in their protective fire for the Canadian attack in that sector in the summer of that year. From the bunker, we'll go through Hebuturn itself. This was a village just behind the British front line. There's a big open green here that was known as shell green to the troops because the Germans dropped shells on it as they moved backwards and forwards. And again, Malcolm had these memories of being in this square, moving through this square on the night of the 1st of July, seeing a soldier of the London Rifle Brigade searching for his brother, who had only just been killed, and seeing the casualties being brought back for treatment in the then overflowing dressing stations that were completely overwhelmed by the scale of the casualties that had been suffered by the men who had fought here. 
Major General Hull, commanding the London Division, his duty was to draw the German attention on himself to relieve other parts of the front, and despite the terrible losses of thousands of his men here on the 1st of July, he drew the terrible conclusion that they had succeeded in doing that, but at great cost to themselves, and perhaps as he wrote those lines in his war diaries, hoped that they'd made some effect on the outcome of the battle that day. But coming through the village of Hebuturn, all of these villages, of course, completely destroyed by 1918. This was all part of what was then known as the Zone Rouge, the Red Zone, an area of almost total destruction on these Great War battlefields. We go through the village, we cut past the church and take one of the side rows that takes us over the open fields between Hebuturn and the next village of Serre. Serre, not much more than a hamlet in 1916, and even less so today, just a small collection of houses, no church, even the town hall now has been turned into a residence rather than a, a functional public building. And that will bring us into the battlefield there at Serre, in the track that runs down the edge of the copses. Most people come in from the far side. There were four copses that straddled the British front line here, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and we're coming in from the John Copse end, and we can see a whole series of little battlefield cemeteries out in the ground around us. If we connect up the crosses of sacrifice that we see from Luke Copse Cemetery to the Queen Cemetery at Puisieux over to Serre Road number three, we're looking almost right down the middle of no man's land. And these open fields with a gradual gradient, a small incline going up towards the edge of Serre, was the killing ground of the Northern Powell's battalions on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. That division, 31st Division, raised from battalions recruited in the north, the Accrington Powell's, two battalions of the Barnsley Powell's, two battalions of the Bradford Powell's, the Hull Powell's, four battalions of them in their own brigade, the Leeds Powell's, the Sheffield City Battalion, and all of the others that were here supporting them. The absolute archetype of what Powell's battalions were, recruited in these close-knit northern communities, men who'd grown up together, men who had lived together in their communities, worked together, played together, drunk together, even perhaps dated the same girl, and when the war comes along, they all join up together. They're told that they'll be kept together to create this incredible esprit de corps, this incredible motivation that will take them from the training grounds to the battlefield and that they will not be separated. So this idea of them joining up, serving, going overseas together is kind of that next bit that most people didn't really think of. And what we see at Serre on the first day of the Battle of the Somme is that the destruction of these battalions, most of them suffering over or almost 500 casualties out of the men that went into battle and those terrible awful casualties that we see when we look in the small battlefield cemeteries that are in this part of the Somme front with another a fourth one here tucked behind the copses railway hollow cemetery we see the effect on these places from Yorkshire to Lancashire to Durham whole communities thrown into mourning whole streets being inundated with telegrams informing them that sons and brothers and husbands and fathers have been killed, wounded 
or missing, and the missing was the cruelest blow, really. And all of these cemeteries that we see here that are in the old no-man's land are cemeteries that were made after the Germans withdrew from this area in 1917. And in many cases, these were men who were left in no-man's land, left in the shell holes, unburied, left hanging on the wire because they could not be recovered and left lying there for months and months until the spring, the early spring of 1917, when the Germans withdrew from this area. It was a miracle that any of them were ever identified. And during all of that time, the families told that these men were missing. There was that tiny, tiny little hope that somehow they'd survived, lost their memory, a prisoner of war as yet unreported. But the discovery of their bodies here at that time in 1917 confirmed their deaths, ended that misery, and probably for many families pushed them off that terrible chasm that grief is when you have to accept that someone has died. Whenever I come here, I always think of the veterans I knew who fought in this battle here at Sayre. By a sheer fluke then, living in the south, I came across quite a lot of men who were originally from the north of England who had served in some of these POWs battalions in this attack at Sayre on the 1st of July. And the one that I perhaps think most of all about when I come here is Reg Glenn, who was in the Sheffield City Battalion. I've mentioned Reg quite a few times in this podcast. He always said that the Sheffield City Battalion was made up of a thousand of the best men of Sheffield and him. He always kind of played himself down in some respects, but he was a remarkable gentleman, part of the signal section of the Sheffield City Battalion, and he went over with his comrades from one part of the signal section with the other half behind them waiting to send the messages back to and they moved out into the waist high grass here on that day thinking it was going to be as they'd been told a walk over nothing was going to survive not even a rat and all they would have to do would be to walk across no man's land and then the flashes of rifles and machine guns ahead of them and men dropping in the grass around him. At that point, he was confused what was going on. Had orders been given to take cover? So he took cover too, not realising that what he was actually seeing was the German machine guns mowing down the men around him. Men that he'd grown up with, gone to school with, to college with. Men who he'd shared the privations of trench warfare with over these past months. And now, in an instant, the battalion was gone. And he was one of those in particular that strongly remembered the Skylarks as the barrage lifted at zero hour, 7.30am. There was that momentary pause in the din and the noise of battle when the Skylarks could be heard above them. And really, perhaps if there's one point of inspiration as to why I use Skylarks in this podcast, it comes from those memories of men like Reg Glenn, who recalled how the Larks would always transport them back to that moment on the Somme in 1916. Cutting down the tracks past the two vast Sayre cemeteries, Sayre Road Number 1 and the even bigger Sayre Road Number 2, the largest British cemetery on the Somme, we climb the next ridge to the Red Anne Ridge, part of a, in some respects, a forgotten part of the first day of the Somme story. The British 4th Division attacked here into several German defensive positions, including the Heidenkopf, the Heathen's Head, they had an attached brigade from the 48th South Midland Division of Royal Warwickshire Regiment Territorials, many of them from Birmingham. They suffered terrible losses in the attack on this area around Sayre on the northern part of the Red Anne Ridge. And in the main area of the attack, 
regular army battalions which only had a tiny number of their original regulars considering that these were units that had been out since August 1914 and had fought in all those battles since and became one of the first British divisions to move down to the Somme after the Second Battle of Ypres in the summer of 1915. They were made up now of replacements, men from Kitchener's battalions, reserve battalions that had been sent out to replace the losses of the regulars who'd been killed and wounded and gassed in the earlier phase of the fighting. It was a division that on the first day of the Somme suffered again thousands of casualties in this tiny strip of land marked now like Sayre with these small comrade cemeteries, battlefield cemeteries that were made after the Battle of the Somme had finally pushed the Germans off this ridge and the dead could be buried. All of these battlefield cemeteries, the ones at Sayre, the ones here, the ones across on Hawthorne Ridge as well, and the area of the Newfoundland Park, which we'll come to shortly in this walk, they're all cemeteries that are collective burials, that are men buried in shell holes, collective graves, and you often see this with a line of headstones with multiple names on, and then in the middle, a single blank stone in terms of naming, no name, but with a religious symbol, a cross in the middle of it, and that is always placed in the middle of a collective grave. It's not quite a mass grave because they're not just kind of tipped in there, they're properly buried, but you can imagine bodies lying out on a battlefield for months. These are potentially fragmentary remains. It's the cruel, terrible reality of bodies lying out on a battlefield for most of the course of the fighting. Here at Red Anne Ridge, I think of George Butler. He was that incredible teenage Tommy that had joined the army at 12 in 1910, finally come across as a 17-year-old in January of 1915 in the machine gun section of the Lancashire Fusiliers and then transferred to the machine gun corps. He was now, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, he was now a sergeant. And I've mentioned this picture before of him and his comrades of his machine gun company. He is the most senior soldier on the photograph. He's a sergeant. He's the most long-serving soldier on the photograph. He is the most experienced soldier on the photograph, but he's also the youngest soldier on the photograph. He's only 18 years old as a sergeant. And he went over the top with his machine gun team, the number one on the gun, moving forward with the machine gun team, supporting the men of the Essex Regiment in his particular sector as they moved forward to try and get towards the edge of Sayre. Now, some from that battalion did cut off, surrounded, and sadly, like most other areas of the attack in this northern part of the battlefield, there was nothing to show except casualties come the end of it. And following the tracks round here, it moves us down into the next sector of the 1st of July battlefield as we walk from the northern end of the Sunken Road. Sunken Road, such a common feature of chalk landscapes, but this, the most famous of them all. Famous because a cinematographer, Geoffrey Malins, set up his camera here in the early hours of the 1st of July before the attack began. He'd come through a tunnel that had been dug to move British troops from the front line, the original front line, and annex this sunken lane as a jumping-off point on the morning of the 1st of July. And there in the lane were the men of the Lancashire Fusiliers, a battalion that had won fame at Gallipoli the previous year for winning six VCs before breakfast as the newspaper headlines went. Alongside them, trench mortar men from the brigade, trench mortar battery, and machine gunners from the machine gun company are waiting to go over the top. 
And really, when we come here today, it's changed little in more than a century. It's overhung still by trees, as we see on the Malian's film. It's got a special, unique atmosphere, I think. And here, we can almost reach out and touch the ghosts of Malian's, those faces that we see in that film. And every year that I come here, I see adult groups, school groups, standing here with those photographs, with iPads, with the film on it, matching it up, trying to do some then and nows, connecting to the landscape, connecting to the stories of the First World War. Sure, everyone comes here and does the same thing. But that's, that's good. That's really good, I think, because it shows how powerful even silent film can be. We look into that film and we see the faces of those men who have a very uncertain future ahead of them. We wonder how many of them made it past that day of the 1st of July. And this part of the battlefield, through that film, through the stories, will be immortalised eternally because of it. Going up over the Hawthorne Ridge, we'll go past the Hawthorne Mine Crater and young Eric Heaton, buried in Hawthorne Ridge Number 1 Cemetery. We've covered those quite recently on the podcast and also on the YouTube channel. And that'll take us through a gate at the rear of what is now the Newfoundland Park, the Newfoundland Regiment fought here on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Newfoundland was not part of Canada in the First World War, nor was it in the Second World War, and it supplied in the Great War an infantry battalion that was part of the British Army. It was granted the royal title in 1917, becoming the only regiment of the British Army to be given that status while the war was still on. And here, despite having served at Gallipoli in 1915 in static warfare there, this was their first baptism of fire, their first time over the top in battle, and catastrophic for them in terms of the losses. The part two of this podcast, following our walk along the old front line of the Somme, will be looking at those terrible casualties, and we'll come back to the losses sustained by the Newfoundland Regiment on the 1st of July. But after the war, when it came to memorialisation, some nations built memorials, and the Newfoundland government did with bronze caribous on the places where the regiment had fought. But uniquely here, the widows and the mothers of those who died here that day purchased this ground and preserved it in perpetuity. And as we come into the back of the park, near to the Y ravine, this deep chalk ravine, the shape of a Y, just behind the German positions, we see the German trenches from which they made their defence on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Again, we see small battlefield cemeteries, Hawthorne Ridge Number 2 and Hunter's Cemetery, and across the park, Wire Ravine Cemetery, and we can follow the tree-lined avenue that takes us across no man's land towards the British trenches to the point where the Newfoundland Regiment had gone into attack, following up on the initial waves of men from the Border Regiment and the South Wales Borderers who'd attacked at zero hour. This was a great tragedy for all of the battalions that took part in the fighting here. The entire division of the 29th Division, a regular army division that had fought from the Hawthorne Ridge, which we've just come over to this area around Beaumont Hamill, which is now part of Newfoundland Park. This was an area that division suffered over 5,000 casualties on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. But for Newfoundland, this was a part of the battlefields, a part of the old front line that held so much Newfoundland blood that it cost so much in terms of the casualties suffered by the regiment here on that first day of the battle, that it was symbolic, important for them, for this ground to be preserved. 
And what we see here is a snapshot, really, of the Western Front with a whole set of German trenches, no man's land, and then the British trenches as well. And although it's grassed over, we can see the shell holes, we can see the traverses of the trenches. You can stand on the viewing platform near to the Bronze Caribou Memorial and get this bird's eye view across the battlefield here. It's a very impressive place and I think it tells us a lot, not just about the Newfoundland story and what happened here on the 1st of July, but a lot more about the wider aspects of the experience of the Great War and trench warfare. And it's one of the reasons, a bit like the Sunken Lane, that so many people come here each year to reach out and connect, to touch and understand the First World War in places like this. Today it's maintained by the Veterans Affairs Canada and young Canadians work here. Newfoundland became part of Canada after the Second World War. And the 1st of July is Canada Day, but also a day of remembrance and Newfoundland making all visits for any Canadian that comes here. I guess particularly poignant. From there we cross the Ancre at Hamel, go down into the valley, the River Ancre. The anchor runs through this northern area of the battlefield, quite a long way from the actual River Somme itself, and the Ancre gave its name to a whole series of battles in the latter part of the fighting here in 1916. It's not much more than a little stream as it cuts underneath the bridge as you go across the valley and then climb the steep slope beyond up towards the Thiepval ridges, with Thiepval Wall on our right, where the British front lines ran just to the left of the wooded area, and then the Germans holding the village of Saint-Pierre-Divion and the high ground beyond. And it takes us up to the Ulster Tower, the first of the memorials to be built here in 1921, standing there, this tall tower, a copy of St. Helen's Tower in Northern Ireland, where the division had done its training in the early part of the war, standing there in the early 20s as this beacon to the Great War in a smashed landscape and remembering the more than 5,000 men of the Ulster Division who had fought here on the 1st of July. They'd emerged from their trenches on the edge of Thiepval Wood before zero hour. Many of them were almost on the German trenches at zero hour and got into the front line and fought their way through to the major German defensive position here, the Schwaben Redoubt. And then the Germans reacted, they dropped down a box barrage onto no man's land, cutting off the ability to send over reinforcements and ammunition and grenades and also send men back in the opposite direction. And the Ulster Division found itself fighting for its life in these German trenches. By the end of the day, they'd held on to a section of the German line, but the division had almost been annihilated. And like Newfoundland, like the northern cities at Serre, for Belfast, for the Ulstermen, the first day of the Battle of the Somme is a symbolic day, a day that really speaks for their whole Great War experience. Men from Ulster, men from Ireland fought in all four years of the war on every front. Ireland's role in the Great War is so important, so important for us to remember. But for those from Ulster, this day, this place connects them to the Great War like nowhere else. And we see the costs in lives in that Ulster division as we scan our eyes along the ranks of the headstones and see the cap badges of the Royal Irish Rifles and the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers who formed the infantry battalions of the Ulster division. Connaught Cemetery and Mill Road Cemetery, the two battlefield cemeteries that are located here, mark the two front lines. You can walk from Connaught across the old no man's land to Mill Road where some of the headstones are laid flat, where there was a deep German dugout, 
Originally, the headstones were upright, but the stability of the ground or lack of stability meant that the headstones were laid flat, unique here on the Somme battlefields, but not unique for a First World War cemetery. Quite a few of the coastal cemeteries have headstones laid flat there because of sandy ground. And we can stand at the back of the cemetery and look to our left towards a little track that runs across the back of the ridge here to where the Schwaben Redoubt was located. A lot of people think the cemetery is on the Schwaben. It isn't. The Schwaben is a little bit further back. We can also then look to our right and see the Thiepval Memorial sitting on the crest of the Thiepval Ridge. And when we go back down the track and walk up towards Thiepval itself, there's a little scar across the fields on the right going to the corner of Thiepval Wood. When I first used to come here in the 80s, there was another sunken road here in those days, long since been scrubbed out by the farmer. And that was the join between the Ulster Division and the next formation. And there, in that sunken lane, was another battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers, this time from the Salford Powell's battalions. They attacked from this lane and the edge of the wood, three battalions of Salford Powell's and the 16th Battalion Northumberland Fusiliers. They went up the slopes towards Steepvale Ridge, straight into that withering German machine gun fire. There's only so many ways you can describe how German machine guns mowed down the men of the new army, of the territorial battalions, of the units that fought here on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. You sometimes struggle, really, for words to describe it, but here on the 1st of July, those four battalions of Salford lads and the Northumberland Fusilier Battalion, their battalion commanders have been held back in the front-line trench to allow their men to make the assaults, and then they would move forward and set up their command posts on the crest of the ridge. But they had to stand there and watch their proud battalions be annihilated as they move through the waist-high grass of no man's land up that ridge straight into those machine guns from the German 180th Regiment of Württemberg Regiment recruited in Stuttgart. The battalions pretty much ceased to exist, and at least one of those battalion commanders had to be evacuated on the night of the 1st of July with shell shock, having witnessed his men, his boys, be cut down in that tragic attack on this part of the Thiepval Ridge. In Thiepval itself, of course, we find the memorial to the missing, and we'll come back to its importance, its connection to the 1st of July when we look at the casualties. And that'll take us round past a little wooded quarry that sat at the hearts of the Leipzig salient, an area of intensive fighting on the 1st of July involving the men of the Highland Night Infantry, but also the 11th Border Regiment who came up from the edge of the wood we can see in the distance, or Twee Wood. This was the Lonsdale Battalion, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Michel, who led them up the slopes towards this ground, and they too were cut down by German machine gun fire and suffered catastrophic losses, Michel being amongst the dead from that day. From there we cut down past the Lonsdale Cemetery, the cemetery named after that Lonsdale Battalion, where many of their dead are buried in the original plot, and we can continue down into a deep valley that we cross into part of the line marked on British maps as the Nab or Nab Valley. And here the 8th and 9th Battalions of the York and Lancaster Regiment went into battle here, also suffering terrible losses. These were two battalions recruited in the area close to where I'm recording this podcast. Although South Yorkshire is known for the Barnsley Powers and for the Sheffield City Battalion and its territorial battalions in all of these areas as well, the 8th and 9th York and Lancaster Regiment recruited a lot of men from the Barnsley, Doncaster, Sheffield area. When you look at the casualties for the 1st of July, 
Many men from those places are listed amongst the ranks of these battalions, and here they suffered terrible, terrible losses. All there is to mark it are some little private memorials that people connected to men from those two battalions who fell here have put up overlooking Nab Valley in recent years. A little memorial cross is one of them on a fence post, for example. And then from there we come up over the top of that rise into the next Somme village, Ovalas, and that takes us along and into one of two valleys in this area. There was a long one with a sausage-shaped observation balloon at the end of it. That was Sausage Valley. And if you have a Sausage Valley, you've got to have a Mash Valley as well. And as we come out of the village of Ovalas, there's a road that runs off to the left up towards the main Albert Bapome Road. There's a line of modern houses there. They're pretty much on the German front line area. And then we continue to Ovalas Military Cemetery and we're overlooking that Mash Valley one of the most deadliest parts of the Somme battlefield on the 1st of July. More than 10% of the overall casualties for the entire day were suffered in this part of the battlefield and the Germans having a totally dominant position here from the high ground behind us, beyond the cemetery, along the edge of the village where those modern houses are now located and also from the ridge line where the main road runs along an escarpment in the neighbouring village of La Boiselle. It formed a kind of a U-shape, the German positions here, and the men who attacked moved straight into the middle of that. A lot more than rats had survived in the German defences, and yet again that terrible, that chilling phrase, battalion after battalion melted away under that intensive German machine gun fire here on the morning of the 1st of July. I remember tracking down a veteran who served here with the 2nd Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment, and I rang him up to have a kind of provisional chat with him. And when I rang him up, I said, are you Mr. Smith who fought with the 2nd Middlesex in Mash Valley on the 1st of July? I am, he said, I am. And he was most surprised that anyone even knew what Mash Valley was, let alone that he served there. But he was one of many that I'd found in the back of Martin Middlebrook's classic First Day of the Somme. And that then led me to find them and track them down and interview them. But it's another veteran that I think of when... I come here, really. He didn't fight here on the first day of the Somme. He was here a week later in the 7th of July attack on Ovalers with the 12th Eastern Division. He fought with the Royal Fusiliers, and that's Alf Rizel. Alf Rizel was a very well-known Great War veteran in the 90s. He appeared on documentaries, and you'll find him. I've recommended it I don't know how many times on this podcast and on Twitter, A Game of Ghosts, which you'll find on YouTube. He's in that and he talks about the attack that he took part in here and how his battalion commander was killed and so many of the officers, and then afterwards they had to clear the battlefield of the dead. And what he was finding, of course, was not just the dead from that last attack on Ovalas, which had finally secured the ground and enabled the capture of this bit of Mash Valley and the village beyond, but the dead from the first day of the Battle of the Somme as well, and they were buried in shell holes. And those provisional graves were eventually moved into what is now Ovalas Military Cemetery. That memory of burying the dead going through their pockets for their pay books and personal items and identity discs was something that really haunted Alf Rizel, haunted all of the men around him that day as they buried the dead as well. But for Alf, he was the spokesman. He was the one who survived to tell that story and a powerful story it is. And the remembrance of that story and the remembrance of the grim reality of men like Alf burying the dead is something that I always think of when I go to one of these cemeteries. Today they're beautiful English gardens of remembrance. They somewhat belie the reality of the deaths of these men. Maybe, maybe that's their purpose. 
to remove the darkness of what had happened on those battlefields and replace it with the bright light that we see from the headstones, from the Portland Stone row and row of headstones that characterise all of these soldiers' cemeteries of the Somme. From Mash Valley, we cut across to the neighbouring village of La Boiselle, and it's a tale of two craters, two mine craters here, one now forgotten and the other one probably on one of the most visited locations on the Somme battlefields today. Two mines were blown here, the Wysap mine in Mash Valley and the Lochnagar mine in Sausage Valley. The Wysap mine in the interwar period was a very famous battlefield location, visited on all of the tours, all of the pilgrimages, because it was right by the main road. There was a little fence put round it, a gate, a pathway, and it was an impressive crater to come and see. It was much more difficult in that period to get to Lochnagar because it was down a side road, a rough track and I don't think as many people went there to Lochnagar in those days but then we jump on to the 70s the Great War generation is fading away the parents of the Great War generation who had suffered those terrible losses have all gone and now the numbers visiting these battlefields declines and declines and declines and it reaches that lowest ebb in the early 1980s and the farmers begin to think that we've forgotten about the Great War and things did disappear in that 1970s and early 80s period. And one of the places that went was the Wysap mine. It was filled in and eventually, many years later, they built houses on it. I mean, as I've said before, who builds houses on a former mine crater? I don't know. But it was filled in and it's gone. And the white chalk mark where it once was has also gone. It's part of someone's back garden now or disappeared under some of those modern houses and for many people coming to the Somme now they don't even know it ever existed because today with the new roads and part of the circuit de souvenir the the circuit of remembrance everyone comes to the Lochnagar crater and we can come to it because of the far-sightedness of an Englishman Richard Dunning who purchased having seen the Wysap get filled in who purchased the Lochnagar mine crater in the 1970s and preserved it and when he bought it he could never have realized just how many people would come and visit that site in later years hundreds of thousands if not millions during the great war centenary it is the number one site on the Somme next to the Newfoundland Park and the Thiepval Memorial everyone comes here and rightly so and it's maintained Richard Dunning is still alive, still the owner of it, but it's maintained by a group of volunteers, the Friends of Loch Nagar, who've turned it into a memorial site. And from it we can see the battlefield where so many men went into action on the 1st of July. Two entire brigades of Tynesiders, the Tyneside Scottish and the Tyneside Irish, that brigade of men from the Grimsby Chums, the 10th Lincolns, the 11th Suffolks, the Cambridgeshire Battalion, and the 15th and 16th Royal Scots recruited in Edinburgh. They made their way up this valley, up Sausage Valley. The Tynesiders emerged from the crest of the two hills that we can see back towards Albert. On a clear, bright day, we can see the tower of the Basilica with a golden figure of Mary on top, which in 1914-18 was at this roughly 90-degree angle, the so-called Leaning Virgin. From the top of those two hills, the Tara Usna line, the Tynesiders emerged and walk straight into that German machine gun fire. And there are those haunting photographs, black and white photographs taken at the time, of lines of men 
with the rifles over their shoulders walking down the hill straight into that machine gun oblivion. It's a very sobering, like all of these places, a very sobering place to come to just to think of the scale of the losses. You can look at a hill on one side of the battlefield where you're standing at the crater, turn around and look up Sausage Valley, and between that point and that point, something like 6,000 casualties were suffered in this one area. A staggering, staggering thought. From there we can continue down the tracks beyond the Loch Nagar crater to the next village of Freecor. This is an area that I always associate with the 9th Battalion of the King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry and on a previous anniversary of the song we looked at their story in the podcast and you can go back to discover that. They were a battalion that assembled behind the lines on the eve of the battle. They'd wanted to toast their commanding officer. He was very unpopular, Lieutenant Colonel Lynch and one of the men, Gordon Haswell, stepped forward and suggested a different toast. Gentlemen, when the barrage lifts... And that phrase really has come to characterise that moment in time when the barrage lifts and the men went over the top and walked into, as we've just described, that machine gun oblivion. Haswell, Colonel Lynch's commanding officer, and so many of those men from the 9th Battalion, King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, lay in the cemeteries in this area. And as we come down into the outskirts of Free Corps, we see Free Corps New Military Cemetery where the dead of the 10th West Yorks and the 7th East Yorks are buried, who made an attack in this area, a battlefield cemetery, very much a comrade cemetery, and above it in the distance is the high ground where Siegfried Sassoon, in reserve with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, watched the attacks go in here, and from which he later described it as a sunlit picture of hell as he saw these lines of men move forward into the machine gun and the shell fire. Through Freecourt we come up over the top of the ridge at the Bois Francais down into the next village of Mametz. This is a part of the battlefield with the story of the Devonshire Regiment, the Devonshire Cemetery. The Devonshires held this trench, the Devonshires hold it still. Again, something that we've looked at in previous podcasts. But when I walk through Mametz or travel through Mametz on a battlefield tour... As you get up to the crossroads in the village, there's an old cafe on the left-hand side. And I think of my old pal John Dray, who stood in that cafe with a group of veterans that he was guiding for the 50th anniversary of the Somme on the 1st of July, 1966. And in his group, he had most of a platoon of the Manchester Powers who had fought in the battle for this village 50 years before on the 1st of July, 1916. Sitting with him at the table was their platoon commander, who'd been a young second lieutenant there, and at the bar was the old platoon sergeant, with the remaining men of his platoon lining them up to get their drink, to get their beer at the bar. And the officer turned to John Dray and he said, See that man at the bar? He's my old platoon sergeant. And he paused, and he looked at John Dray and he said, Damn fine man in a tight corner. And what better epitaph for a soldier? a damn fine man in a tight corner. And there were many tight corners on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. As we emerge from the village, we get to Danzig Alley Cemetery, named after one of the German trench lines that ran through here, which was captured on the 1st of July. We've covered in most of this journey ground where there was almost none or no success at all on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. As we move from Ametz to the next village of Montabar, were in ground where this was captured. The objectives were taken, not without loss, but there was success here. It was a different picture on this southern part of the battlefield for all sorts of reasons. 
slightly different approaches to the fighting used, the provision, much greater provision of heavier guns to smash up the German positions, to entomb the Germans in their dugouts, destroy their frontline defences. When you look at the fighting in this southern sector, it appears a little bit more joined up than some of the other places, but always, always at a cost, which we see in cemeteries like Danzig Alley. And walking along the crest of the high ground here, running close to where that trench ran in 1916, we can come into the next village of Montabaur, but over to our right we see the southernmost British villages on the Somme front, Carnois, Carnoy and Maricourt. From Carnoy on the 1st of July, the 8th East Surreys made their advance and famously Captain Billy Neville's men kicked footballs out into no man's land. But walking through Montabaur village, the southernmost village on the Somme front captured by British troops on the first day of the Somme, we come across the Powell's Memorial in the centre of the village, but before we get there, we come across a water tower on the right-hand side. It's covered in ivy at the moment, very easy to miss this, but if you pull the ivy back and squint your eyes a little bit, you can see a plaque on the water tower that commemorates the fact that the town of Maidstone in Kent gave money for the construction of this water tower as part of their twinning with Montabat after the war to help it regrow to help the rebirth of a new Montauban destroyed in the war. And Maidstone, the home of battalions of the Royal West Kents who had fought in this area of the Somme battlefields, it gave a practical way of remembering their sacrifice by constructing a water supply so the citizens of Montauban could drink clean water and their village rise phoenix-like from the ashes of what the Red Zone had become by the end of the conflict. When we get to the Powers Memorial, we see the cap badges of the Liverpool Powers and the Manchester Powers, two formations that were key in the capture of this village on the 1st of July. And while I did interview some veterans who fought in this part of the battlefield, when I come here, I always think of Graham Maddox. Graham Maddox was a, a school teacher, a military historian, and an author who wrote the fantastic book on the Liverpool Powers, but long before that, in the 1970s, he wrote an article about a journey he made here to Montauban with the details and the memories of a veteran that he'd interviewed. And I read that as a youngster in a magazine called Battle. It was a wargaming and modelling magazine that was published in the 1970s. And I think that if ever there is a point for me in which my own journey to the Somme began, it's when I read that article by Graham Maddox and I looked at the map that he drawed and the photograph of this Liverpool Powell's drummer and his cap badge, the Duck and Bastard, the coat of arms of the Lord Derby family. Lord Derby had formed these four battalions of Liverpool Powell's, paid for their uniforms, paid for their equipment, their weapons, their billets, their training. And although they were part of the King's Liverpool Regiment, whose cap badge was the White Horse of Hanover, he felt they should have a special badge taking the coat of arms of the Derby family. And he had over 4,000 of these badges struck in solid silver. And the badge with a liver bird swooping over a child in the cradle was somewhat ingraciously nicknamed the Duck and Bastard by the men who served in those battalions. But that article of Graham's, I think like probably many of us, we all have a starting point. And for me, that was one of those that made me determine to make a similar journey one day whenever that day would be, and it would be nearly a decade 
later by the time that I did it. But people like Graham Maddox, and sadly he's now no longer with us, he joins the ranks of those who came before who really established this interest in the First World War. John Giles, Rose Coombs, Lynn MacDonald, so many others. And I do think of them every time I travel to the Somme, even if it's just opening their books again and reading their works that so inspired me to tramp this ground and understand it and connect to it in the way that their books, their accounts help us to do. And from the Powers Memorial, we'll go roughly north out of the village. The ground drops a little bit away on the other side of Montabaur to where the German trench lines were captured by the Manchester Powers on the late afternoon of the 1st of July. And there's a little track that goes off to our right And I often take groups here when we do tours of this part of the Somme battlefield because this is the next stage of the battle. We've come to the end of the 1st of July story. Over to our right is where the French army fought on the 1st of July. That's another story for another day, another podcast. But from here, from the British and Commonwealth perspective, we can stand on this track and we can see a long valley stretching off to our left. That's Caterpillar Valley. Beyond it on the crest is Caterpillar Valley Cemetery, we can see the very distinctive shape of the shelter in the cemetery there. And ahead of us is the village of Longerval and surrounding it, what Martin Middlebrook called the horseshoe of woods. Bernafay Wood, Trones Wood, Delville Wood, Highwood, Bazentown Wood, Mamets Wood, all places of fighting as the Battle of the Somme rolled on. But that was what was going to come next. That was the next stage of the story of the British and Empire forces on the Somme in 1916. And having made this long journey along 18 miles of front from Gomacourt to here at Montabar, we pause, we take breath, and we'll finish the podcast with a look at the casualties and what they mean to us from that terrible first day of the Battle of the Somme. We've spoken throughout this podcast of battalions melting away under machine gun fire and terrible losses. What were those losses in that black day of the British Army on the 1st of July in 1916? Well, the starting point is the official history. The official history of the Great War was published in multiple volumes from the 1920s right through to the 1940s. Some of them were published while the Second World War was raging. And they're an incredibly detailed, often quite dry account of the First World War, but they're incredibly important as a starting point for our understanding of building up a picture, really, of what happened on these battlefields of the Great War. The 1916 period is divided into two volumes, with Volume 1 covering what the British Army was doing on the Western Front in the first half of 1916 in operations like the Battle of the St. Loire Craters, But the bulk of it, the bulk of its 523 pages with a separate map volume with absolutely fantastic maps showing the dispositions of all the units on the first day of the Somme, the bulk of that book covers the 1st of July 1916. Written by Brigadier General Sir James Edmonds and published in 1932, it tells us a lot throughout the account of the 1st of July what the casualties of individual divisions, brigades and battalions were and then looks at the whole picture towards the end. And what it tells us that the initial report that went in as the battle had just come to an end put in a casualty figure 
of nearly 62,000 that was then subsequently revised to what was considered corrected figures because a lot of men who were missing actually subsequently turned up. They were not killed, they were not wounded, they just not made a particular roll call to indicate that they were still with the battalion. Such was the confusion often at the end of these kind of battles. So the corrected figures that the official history states as the casualties of the British and Empire forces on the Somme on the 1st of July 1916 are 993 officers killed or died of wounds, 18,247 other ranks killed or died of wounds, 1,337 officers wounded and 34,156 other ranks wounded, 96 officers missing and 2,056 other ranks missing, 12 officers prisoners of war and 573 other ranks known to be prisoners of war as well. And that totals... 2,438 officer casualties and 55,032 other rank casualties, a total of 57,470. So 57,470 British and Empire Commonwealth soldiers were killed, wounded, missing or prisoners of war on the 1st of July 1916. And Edmonds has to grimly conclude for the disastrous loss of the finest manhood of the United Kingdom and Ireland, there was only a small gain of ground to show. So that's one end of the casualty figure, and 57,000 casualties are casualties. They're not all dead. The dead, the figure of the dead is 19,240, a staggering amount of soldiers killed or died of wounds in a single day. Not as high as some other days of the war for other nations, France suffered even higher casualties in the Battle of the Frontiers in August 1914 and the fighting in the Champagne in September 1915. Some pioneering work by the late David O'Mara really highlighted that story of the 1915 scale of losses. But for Britain and the Commonwealth, this was the blackest day. And within that, of course, is so many tragic stories of not just individual soldiers, but individual units as well. Unit after unit lost all of their officers and very high percentages of their men. On the first day of the Somme, 175 battalions went into action. Of those, 59 of them went over the top in the very first wave. So that's a total of just over 133,000 officers and men who went into battle. 57, nearly 58,000 of those become casualties. And of the men who were in the initial wave, those 59 battalions, that amounts to nearly 45,000 men who went over the top with 116 battalions following them into action during the course of the day. And when we analyse this a little bit further, we look at Martin Middlebrook's first day of the Somme book, and we'll put links to that on the podcast website. He shows that 32 of these battalions suffered over 500 casualties. In most cases, that amounted to about 70, in some cases even 80% of the strength of the men that had gone into battle. The two battalions that suffered the most was the 10th Battalion, the West Yorkshire Regiment. They were down at Free Corps on the 1st of July. They lost 22 officers and 688 men, a total of 710 casualties. And the Newfoundland Regiment, which we mentioned as we walk through the Newfoundland Park, they lost 14 officers killed and 12 wounded. That was all of the officers that went into action. 
and 219 men killed, 374 wounded and 91 missing. And that brought them up to an identical total to the 10th West York, 710 casualties. And that was out of about 800 to 800 and something that went into battle. So probably the highest percentage casualty rate of any individual infantry battalion anywhere on the Somme front on the 1st of July. We can see why the Somme, Beaumont Hamel and the creation of that memorial park is so important to the Newfoundlanders. During the Great War, 6,339 Newfoundlanders served. 4,984 of those served overseas at Gallipoli or on the Western Front. Of them, 1,232 were killed, 2,314 were wounded and 174 taken prisoner. So we can see throughout the war, not just on the Somme, again and again and again, the Newfoundland Regiment suffered terrible losses. It's amazing that such a small place could supply so many men and suffered so greatly. When we look and we break down the individual divisions on different parts of the front and what their casualty rates were, the highest, which we mentioned when we walked that ground from Overlers and Mash Valley across the Lubwasel near the Lochnagar mine crater, the 34th Division that attacked there with the Tynesiders and the Cambridgeshires and the Grimsby Chums, they lost 6,380 men killed, wounded and missing on the 1st of July, of which 2,500 of those, so about a third, were killed. So one in three, which is a much higher rate than the usual one in five that are killed for the infantry. So it just shows how deadly that part of the battlefield was. And if you think that one division in one sector, those 6,380 casualties amounted for 11% of the total casualties of the entire day. So 11% of the Somme losses on the 1st of July were suffered by one division alone. And we spoke about how in the southern sector there was success, but not without loss. And when we look at the losses there, the 30th Division, who attacked in the southern area towards Montalban, had Liverpool and the Manchester Powers battalions in it. They lost over 3,000 casualties, killed, wounded and missing. And the 18th Eastern Division, who attacked on their flanks towards Danzig Alley and the outskirts of Mametz, they lost over 3,100 casualties. So there, despite success, despite the fact that the barrage worked, the German positions were destroyed, there was fighting in all of the trench lines that they took that day, despite all of that, despite that it worked well there and the objectives were taken, it could not be done without loss. This was one of the, the great realisations as the war moved forward, particularly into its final victorious phase in 1918, when the casualties were even higher in some respects on a daily basis. Then the devil's arithmetic, if you like, of the First World War was that you could not escape losses, often serious, catastrophic losses, even when you were winning. It's one of those aspects of the First World War that I think more than a century later we really struggle to understand and accept. At the time, the generals weren't really sure quite what the scale of the losses were. Rawlinson, who commanded the 4th Army on the Somme from his chateau at Courier, he thought the losses were something in the region of sixteen to 20,000, when they were in fact much, much greater than that. Haig said in his diaries, total casualties are estimated at over 40,000 to date. This cannot be considered severe in view of the numbers engaged. Now we can look at that and think there's a callous general who kind of doesn't really think that 40,000 casualties really matters. 
But as we've often said in this podcast, the scale of the First World War, the scale in which this tipping point of the 1st of July from the old world to the new world and the realisation that to beat a power like Imperial Germany would necessitate these losses, this was all part of that realisation. A terrible realisation because behind each casualty was a life, was a man with hopes and fears, who loved and was loved, there was a wider family and this of course is all part of the tragedy of any war but in particular the tragedy of the First World War. We can also look at the casualty figures of the 1st of July through the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission database. We've done this a few times on the podcast where we've looked at their database and analysed it and I downloaded all of their records for men killed in France on the 1st of July 1916 and that gives us a figure of 18,618 war dead. Now, not all of those died on the Somme, because when we look at to see where they're buried, we find men buried at Morocco or up at Richbourg from diversionary attacks up there or from localised operations. But a very high percentage, obviously, of those 18,618 are men who died on the Somme. And that figure is slightly different to the official history volume figure, because of the way the War Office reported deaths and the way they were often then recorded in Wargraves Commission records. So while the War Office reported men having died on the 1st of July 1916, some of those are listed in the Wargraves records as having died on the 2nd or the 3rd of July because that is the last day that the battalion was in action in that area and the last possible day those men could be alive. The majority of them probably died on the first day of the Somme, but the records didn't always show that. It was a mammoth task trying to ascertain what had happened to those nearly 20,000 men who had died. When we analyse those records, we find some interesting facts, some interesting stories come out of it. We look at the eldest. There were four men who died on the 1st of July 1916, aged 54. Two of them battalion commanders, Lieutenant Colonel Percy Michel of the 11th Borders, the Lonsdales, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and also Lieutenant Colonel Charles Sillery, who commanded the 1st Tyneside Scottish. There was also one of the four 54-year-olds was Company Sergeant Major Joseph Webster of the 9th York and Lanx, who was killed in Nab Valley near Overlas on the 1st of July. So four men aged 54, they were the eldest who died on the 1st of July, but of ordinary soldiers, most of those were officers of ordinary soldiers, the two eldest were Rifleman James Dunleavy of the 11th Royal Irish Rifles, who was killed aged 52, and Private Patrick Costello of the 2nd Yorkshire Regiment, who was killed aged 50. Now, one of them was a regular soldier, possibly a reservist. How he was still on the reserve in his late 40s, I don't know, but there he was serving and being killed on the first day of the Somme, aged 50. And James Dunleavy was a, a volunteer in the Ulster Division and he must have put boot polish in his hair to get rid of the grey. We talk about these young soldiers so often, these teenage Tommies, but it's old soldiers as well. It's incredible how many much older men, often with big families, joined at the beginning of the war in that rush to enlist that became part of the whole recruitment of the new army in 1914 and 1915. And then we look at the youngest at the other end of the scale, there are two 15-year-olds who died on the 1st of July. Private Henry John Woodward of the 1st 6 Royal Warwickshire Regiment. He was from West Kensington. He was killed at Sayre in the fighting near the Quadrilateral, the Hyden Kopf. 
Private John Alexandra Quigley of the 10th Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers, also part of the Ulster Division, who was from County Londonderry. He was killed aged 15 on the 1st of July. There were 16 16-year-olds, including Albert Barker of the 7th East Yorks from Hull, a bit like that article by Graham Maddox in Battle magazine all those years ago. I remember reading an article in Military Modelling where a retired colonel went to the Somme and came across the grave of Albert Barker, killed aged 16. And one year I went there when I was 16 and stood at Albert Barker's grave. And it's always been very special to me as a consequence of that. So 16, 16-year-olds, 16 somewhat appropriately. 95, 17-year-olds and 360 18-year-olds. Now, if they're 18 on the 1st of July, most of them have been in the army for at least a year, in some cases nearly two years. So going back to the incredible research done by Richard Van Emden on young soldiers in the Great War, we just see just how big this army of teenage Tommies was in the trenches of the Western Front. In terms of ranks, obviously the most prolific rank to uh, suffer casualties that day were ordinary ranks like privates and riflemen. But when we look at the commissioned officers, we see an awful lot of second lieutenants, but also senior officers as well. There were 25 senior officers, lieutenant, colonel and above, killed on the 1st of July. Six died of wounds and 22 were wounded. That's a total of 53 senior officers on the 1st of July. Two of these were Brigadier Generals, one killed, Bertie Prowse, up at Serre, he died of his wounds, and one wounded in the Tynesiders down at La Boiselle. Most of the rest of them were Lieutenant Colonels, but there were also five Majors who were either temporary Lieutenant Colonels appointed to command infantry battalions or were Majors who were acting battalion commanders, and incredibly, one Captain who was commanding the 8th Battalion King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry. This was Captain Kenneth Elliston Powser. So he's the most junior rank as an officer commanding an infantry battalion on the first day of the Somme that I know about. He was an interesting character. He was from Maidenhead, born in 1882. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order and mentioned in dispatches twice during the Great War, rose to the rank of Major, doesn't appear to have commanded a battalion as such again. Perhaps his wounds on the first day of the Somme were so heavy that he didn't serve overseas. I've not been able to find out very much about him, to be honest. But he survived the war and he went on to become a judge in the West Indies, dying in Hazelmere in Surrey in 1943. So again, when we kind of look at the 1st of July and that thought, generals die in bed. I mean, these 53 senior officer casualties are not all generals. Two of them are brigadier generals. And there were plenty of generals who were there on the Somme who did go on and die in bed. General Snow up at Gomacor is a good example of that. But it just shows that this was a generation of men from private to battalion to brigade and often even divisional commander on the Somme who led by example. And they paid for that example so often with their lives. And just to conclude, when we come, when we connect to the landscape of the Somme today to find these Somme casualties... Where do we find them in their greatest numbers? And there are five cemeteries on the Somme that have the highest level of burials from the 1st of July. The top of that list is Danzig Alley Cemetery that we walk past. There's 714 men in there who were killed on the 1st of July. That's known burials. There will be lots of unknowns 
amongst these and all the other cemeteries that are 1st of July casualties as well. But it gives us a kind of benchmark for where we find the most 1st of July casualties. So Danzig Alley at the top is 714. Overlis Military Cemetery with 608. Sayre Road number two, a post-war concentration cemetery. That's got 430. Gordon Dump Cemetery near La Boiselle, 311 in there. And Gomacor British Cemetery number two with 253. So those five cemeteries are kind of the, the beacons, if you like, to the story of the casualties for the first day of the Battle of the Somme. But the majority of the names, their men who were missing, whose bodies were never identified or never found. On the Thiepval Memorial are 12,414 men who were listed as having been killed on the 1st of July 1916. That's around about 60-something percent. And that was the grim, grim reality of the 1st of July. On most parts of the front, the attacks failed, the dead lay out in no man's land in the summer heat, unable to bury them in some cases for weeks, months, and into the next year, in the case of those northern areas, it wasn't until the Germans withdrew that the dead could be buried there. So given those circumstances, it's perhaps not a surprise to discover so many men do not have marked graves, are commemorated by name on those panels of the Thiepval Memorial. And when we stand there under that huge archway of the Thiepval Memorial, and we can look from the Stone of Remembrance across the headstones of the Anglo-French cemetery out onto that rough bit of ground where a section of the German line from the first day of the battle is still there. We're looking out onto the landscape of the 1st of July, that part of the Somme, that day of the Somme, which resulted in so much death, so much loss, so much tragedy, the lives and loss of so many men whose stories, whose compelling stories, bring us back time and time again to walk these dusty lanes of Picardy, these vast open fields of the Somme. In some ways, the very heart, perhaps the dark heart, of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.